All right, while everybody is taking their seats, a couple of announcements. First of all, Chafer Seminary's fall registration began yesterday on the 1st of August, and they had a, we had a huge number of people sign up for, for courses. And we, last night, and I don't have the details in front of me, but last night we had our board meeting, and I think we have about at 25 students that are degree-seeking, which is really good. That has, uh, and I think there may be more than that, but, but I'm, I'm, it is wonderful to see that number increase, those who are pursuing uh, either the MA in Bible, or which is the two-year, or all the way to the four-year THM. And a lot of times what we're seeing is men get through the first two years and then they go for the go for the THM. So that is very encouraging. So, um, But if you're a member here, West Houston Bible Church, and I know there have been several who signed up for certificate programs, you can take up to two courses tuition-free. So that's a great opportunity. And if you register before next Sunday or up to and including next Sunday, then your registration fee is waived. Also, Jeff Phipps is traveling to Brazil at the end of the last week in August. He'll be there from August 25th to September 25th, and he's teaching at three pastors' conferences. And some people may say, well, you know, he's never been to seminary or anything, but he's been listening to me for over 20 years. And he's got a fairly decent education from that. But considering that in many of these third world countries, the pastors have little or no formal education in the scripture, uh, he probably knows more than all of them put together. So we need to really pray for Jeff, and I know he does a great job when he goes to these uh, to these conferences. And also, I'm going to Africa, mostly vacation, but I'm speaking at two different churches in Africa when I am on vacation in South Africa and also in Zambia. And um, that will be at the last half of September. So there's a lot going on. And um, we need to pray for Alex Lacurza. I haven't mentioned him in a while, but Alex has just been working all along, helping these Ukrainian refugees coming into Romania, uh, taking supplies over into uh, Ukraine for the refugees that are staying on the Ukrainian side of the, of the border. And uh, about oh, less than a week ago, I think last Thursday or Friday, he received a thousand of the uh, eager God, a thousand of the promise books, God's powerful promises to, um, to Alex. And he has less than 200 left. And they've gone to a number of different pastors. He said, I'm going to need another thousand because some of these pastors here just love them. And I'm getting more and more requests for, for that book in, in Ukrainian. And we're trying to find somebody to translate it into Romanian so you can pray for that. So it's that, that book is really being used by the Lord. And there's just very little, if anything like that in, in Ukrainian or in Romanian. So we can really pray that, that we can get all of this, this these printed and and out there. And Alex's mother died about three weeks ago. He had major car problems about four months ago because of a lot of the help that 
donations that came in for them. He was able to, through three or four different ministries helping him, us included, able to get a new vehicle because he picks up these families and he'll drive them six hours to Budapest, Bucharest, not Budapest, Bucharest, and back. And so when you're doing a six-hour drive back and forth, and that's not the only driving you're doing, it pretty much ran his previous vehicle into the ground. So uh, he's doing a tremendous work. All of these uh, people are in taking care of uh, these various uh, needs in Ukraine and with the Ukrainian refugees. Before we get started this evening, let's bow our heads together for a few moments of silent prayer so we can make sure we are in right relationship with the Lord. We are to worship by means of the Spirit. I say this every Sunday, but when we come for Bible class, we're worshiping. When we are studying the Word, reading it, we're worshiping, and so we need to be walking by the Spirit and always precede what we do with confession of sin. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we are so grateful that we have you to come to, that as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are adopted into your royal family And we have the privilege and intimacy to call you Abba, Father. And, Father, we're thankful for that, that we can come and bring these requests before you. We're thankful for the work that so many that we know and so many, many others. We have Ron Mitten and his ministry to pray for throughout Ukraine and and for uh, Luda and the work that she's doing with Campus Crusade in Warsaw, ministering to Uh, many different families and children there who are Ukrainian refugees and for Eager and the work that he's doing. And, Father, we pray for Daniel, for his son, that he can get a visa, student visa, to come here to the U.S. It was was, uh, not given on Monday, but there are some things that they can do, and we pray that they'll be able to get that done, and you will change the minds of these uh, U.S. embassy workers to grant him a student visa to come here to Houston to uh, to study. He's already accepted into, into school here. So, Father, we pray for them. We pray for us as a congregation that we'll continue to think of the worldwide ministry that you have laid at our doorstep through the Internet, through publications, through the different mi- uh, missionaries like the uh, Perkins and... Uh, uh, David and Sarah Ibrahim and working in, in Pakistan and Raleigh Morris in Israel and the uh, those who work with Jim Meyer's ministry in Ukraine. And, Father, we just pray for their safety. We pray for that you will provide the needs of personnel and logistics that they need in order to carry out their ministry. We pray for us tonight as we study your word that we'll be challenged by it. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, open your Bibles again to Judges chapter 8. Judges chapter 8, and tonight I'm going to review, pick up a few things, um, go through the main part of the review there, and then come to the conclusion and tie some things together before we move into the next chapter, which will be chapter 9. 
in my personal opinion, chapter 9 is one of the most bizarre chapters in the Bible. But there's some important lessons there. And there's a reason that it's there. God just didn't put this in there because um, he just thought he would entertain us with how depraved and perverted Israel had become. There are important lessons. And what's so interesting is this, that chapter 9 switches to talk about Gideon's son, but it's all part of the same section. We had chapter 6 started with Gideon. We had chapter 6, chapter 7's the battle, chapter 8's mocking up, I mean, a mopping up campaign at the closure of the military camp campaign. And then chapter 9, this whole uh, episode with, um, with Abimelech. And it doesn't really shift gears and go back to the cycle until we get to chapter 10. And that's a big clue that this whole section from the beginning of 6 to the end of 9 is all part of the same section. And when we get to chapter 9, things really slow down, and there's a lot of detail there. And that's because the Holy Spirit wants us to really pay attention to what's going on in chapter 9. But we need to finish up what we've done, tie some things together here from chapter 8 before we move on. So tonight we're going to focus on uh, national failure. There is no real spiritual turning of the people at all under Gideon's uh, leadership, under his judgeship. In fact, we see that by the end of the military campaign, when they want to make him king, um, he's uh, at first he's not willing to go along, but then he does everything but take the name of king. He acts like a king. He uh, functions like a king, and he leads the whole nation right back into idolatry. And then it just descends into even greater chaos. So all of this just displays what I've been pointing out all along, is that when a culture, when a people, when a tribe, when a nation rejects God, abandons God. That's the real sense as we saw at the beginning in the first uh, two chapters and into uh, down to 3.6. They, they abandoned God and they turned away from God. And the result of that is all of this social and cultural and spiritual and military and economic chaos. It affects everything in a culture. And this is the, I've always loved teaching this book since the first time I taught it in 1979. And the culture hadn't gotten any better since 79. People in this country are not turning to God. There are a lot of individuals that do, but, but the overall culture is becoming more and more hostile to the divine institutions and more and more hostile to Christianity and more and more hostile to truth. In 1980, when I graduated from Dallas Seminary, we didn't even talk, we never used the word postmodernism. And now you can't examine anything without the word. And actually, the postmodern period began about 1900, but it just hadn't crystallized in the thinking of people by the end of the 70s. But now that's where we are. And actually we're moving into the post-postmodernism phase characterized by social justice and critical race theory and, 
and uh, several other things that we may have some time to get into in the course of this study, but it's just destroyed the, the whole fabric of this nation. And it's only due to God's grace that it has held together as well as it has. And we ought to be so grateful for that. And that's part of what I'm focusing on tonight is is gratitude because Israel's completely ungrateful to God for delivering them under uh, uh, under Gideon. So we look at the fact that Gideon, along with uh, others, are mentioned in Hebrews 11.32 that through... Um, through their faith, they subdued kingdoms. And we read Gideon, and we read as much that's bad and terrible as good. And that just shows God's graciousness in including all of these men. They, didn't ha- they, they were not spiritual giants as many people think they are because of what they are taught in Sunday school classes. They were spiritually giants in maybe one incident in their whole life, and they rose to the challenge and trusted God. And for that, they got written up in the Bible and praised for their faith. The problem is arrogance. The arrogant skills are on display there, and they're on display in our culture all the time. We have the most self-absorbed culture even many believers, we can't escape it. You and I sit here and we think, oh, well, we've got Bible doctrine. We know all these things, and we're not like everybody else. But it's hard to pull yourself out of the quicksand of muck, which is the worldview of any any generation. And only through the Word of God do we get out of it to some degree. But, but it's it still... We still carry the stench of it. It still influences our thinking because our sin natures just absorb it. They, our sin natures love it, and it provides a rationale for them. So we're self-absorbed, and we're self-indulgent, and we are self-justified in ways that, you know, it's hard to imagine cultures being more self-absorbed and self-indulgent. We have greater ways to express it, I guess, through social media and we can see it on display uh, much more than other time. But we, th- everybody thinks they're a little God. So we got into going through this chapter, uh, chapter 8, and the focus was the end of the military campaign. And it began back in the beginning with a, uh, um, the, the complaints of the Ephraimites. They're, they're self-absorbed. Why didn't you invite us to the battle? It was all about them and their honor. And then you get the situation with uh, Gideon uh, starting in, um, let me turn back to the right page, starting in verse verse 4. Gideon brings the 300 and he crosses the Jordan River and they've been fighting. They've been up probably all night the night before. They haven't had anything to eat, so they're running out of uh, physical energy they are tired, they may be dehydrated, and yet they're still having to fight and chase uh, the Midianites. And we saw this on the map last time as they, uh, Gideon's forces came down from the north uh, along the Jordan Valley and crossed. Uh, here's the Jordan River here. They crossed over. They come down the Jordan Valley to Sukkot, uh, and then they are rejected, this people in Sukkot, 
uh, won't help them, and then they go to Penuel, and they have the same problem there. And the problem is that these people don't trust the victory. They don't trust God, and so they're operating on fear. And they, they challenge Gideon, and they say, well, who are you? You don't have the hands of your enemy. You haven't cut their hands off yet, so we can see that you have victory. So we're not going to aid you because what they're thinking is if we help you, then what's going to happen is the Midianites are going to come back, and they're going, going to uh, destroy us. So they're operating on fear. And that has a lot of parallels to what's happening in our culture today. Uh, fear has dominated th- this culture in many, many ways. We had fear of COVID and then uh, fear of the vaccines for some people and fear of now we got fear of a monkeypox pandemic and then there's going to be fear of whatever is going to come next and be the next pandemic. We have fears of inflation, fears of recession, fears of political collapse because of the political circus in in Washington and lack of leadership. There's a fear of a food shortage, and we already see problems in the supply chain, and we have for the last couple of years coming out of the COVID thing. Now, I'm not saying that these things aren't real, and I'm not saying that they won't happen, but there's one thing to be sober and cautious in your assessment of what's going on and to be prepared. And it's another thing to do it out of fear and panic. And you can be do two people can be doing the same thing. One of them's doing it because they're just being cautious and careful. The next person is doing it because they're scared to death and they're scared of death. And they don't know what else to do. And that's how most of the unbelieving world is. They are just scared to death that something's going to happen and that they're going to die and they don't want to die. It's a great opportunity to witness to people. But we have to have the courage to do that and help people think through what what the issues are. So you have so many people who are just burdened with fear and they're motivated by fear. And and when you're motivated by fear, you make really bad decisions. When you're in the midst of a fear panic, you you do not make good decisions. And so what we've seen happen is we've seen government officials try to lock everybody down to control everything. And we've seen people who welcome that and think this is wonderful because they don't have any place else to turn except the God of government. And that's what happens. And what we see here with with uh, the people in Sukkot of Penuel, they can't think rationally. No, they have no trust for God. And when you have no trust for God, then you're left with, with panic. And that's your only solution. So we have to uh, get with people, get them uh, promises, get them the gospel, help them, help them grow. So... The leaders of Sukkot and the leaders of Penuel are operating on fear. And what happens with, with Gideon? Gideon reacts in anger uh, in both situations. And he threatens the rulers of Sukkot that he's going to uh, whip them with uh, a tear their flesh with thorns from the wilderness. And then when he goes to Penuel and they won't give, him, give his men supplies, then he threatens that he's going to tear down uh, their tower and destroy their city. So this is this is all horrific. Then uh, Gideon and his men 
who have routed the Midianite army are still chasing them. And finally, in the next section, starting uh, in about verse 10 uh, down through verse um, uh, 15, uh, they're going to be captured. And they're going to be taken back to Sukkot. And when they go back to Sukkot, um, then Gideon is going to take out revenge. This is not how a believer walking with the Lord would conduct his life. He's operating in, in, in vengeance, in personal anger, and he is, uh, he's acting more pagan or just like the pagan culture around him uh, would, would act. And so he's taking personal vengeance on, on these cities, which we saw last time. And this increases in the next section from about verse 18 down to 21. Uh, there's this uh, confrontation with the two kings, Zeba and Zalmunna. And Gideon begins to talk to them and interrogate them. And what, he, what they admit to is that during the time when the Midianite army was there around uh, Mount Tabor that they uh, killed a, a bunch of men who were brothers. It turned out they are Gideon's brothers. They are sons of his mother. And the, the result is that Gideon now is going to take out personal vengeance of, upon them. Now, as we go through this whole section, one of the things we see is that the tribes... The clans, the tribes, the towns, the, the, the nation itself is completely fragmented. People are against each other, and they won't support truly the army of the Lord, Gideon's army. And so this fragmentation, this hostility toward one another, and the divisiveness that comes up, you go to Galatians uh, chapter 5, verses 19 uh, to 21, and you read that, uh, division and factions and hatred are all part of the works of the flesh. So you just see the sin natures are flaring and causing all of this division. And it will culminate when we get to the appendices towards the end of Judges, we realize there's going to be this major civil war, tribe against tribe in Israel. And it just it, it's this fragmentation that comes as a result of, uh, of the sin nature. And so eventually what happens is that he's going to kill Zeb and Zalmuda, and he makes another bad decision, and he tries to have uh, his firstborn, Jather, who's not a, been a soldier, doesn't know what he's doing, and he uh, wants to get him to, uh, to kill Zeba and Zalmuda, but he's not prepared to do it. And so Gideon is the one who, who does that. And what's interesting in all of this is that Gideon's conduct is more like a Middle Eastern potentate than it is like a man of God. And he acts, begins to act and do things uh, that are typical of Middle Eastern rulers. He is, um, he takes all of the spoil, the, uh, talks about the uh, crescent ornaments that are on their camels, takes all of that for himself which is the kind of an act of plundering your enemies that would be typical of the, of the uh, pagan Middle Eastern kings and rulers at that time. That's why uh, that, that leads up to why the people began to offer him 
the kingship. He's, he's been acting like a king, and he's been uh, treating his fellow countrymen in Penuel and in Sukkoth in extremely uh, ruthless, harsh uh, way, and he's pursuing personal vengeance and a and uh, letting his anger control him. And then he makes um, uh, various uh, statements where he's going to uh, take uh, uh, vengeance on all of those who have um, uh, killed his his, uh, relatives, killed his brothers. So this leads to this situation that we talked about last time in 822, and 23, where uh, he's offered uh, the kingship, and the men of Israel come to him, and this would would be the leaders, the elders. They're not said the elders; they're not given that 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 honorary title. They're just the men of Israel. Say, rule over us, both you and your son and your grandson. So, they're, what they're offering is a hereditary kingship which is in violation of, of Deuteronomy. And he says, and then they say, and this is a key statement, for you have delivered us from the hand of Midian. No, he didn't. God delivered them from the hand of Midian. And it shows that there's no spiritual focus in the thinking of the leaders of the people. They are attributing everything to uh, Gideon. And Gideon, this is the high point of his uh, career, says that he won't rule over them nor his son uh, rule over them, but the Lord shall rule over you. So he, he gets it right here, but it doesn't. Unfortunately, it doesn't uh, doesn't last very long. And he makes this turn in verse uh, verse twenty four, where he requests everybody to give him of uh, something some of the spoil uh, from their plunder. And this has a, this is like paying tribute to him. So it has the one, one impact is that he's going to, um, it, it, it's a sign of submission where they're submitting to his leadership, submitting to his, his role. And on the other side, uh, he is going to, he's going to use this, um, to elevate himself uh, uh, above the people. So they, they come and pointed out last time that they took all of the uh, gold earrings and other ornaments, and the weight of it was 1,700 uh, shekels of gold. And this, when you calculate it out, that's 43 pounds of gold. That's pretty heavy. 43 pounds of gold, if you were to calculate that out, where you have uh, about 14, I think it's 14 ounces, 14 and a half ounces of, uh, in, in, in the um, pound for gold, then it comes out at today's prices to one, little over $1.1 million. So he's got a lot of gold to work with. And so the first thing that he does is he gets his men to pay this tribute, as it were, to them, and that is uh, sets them up for being submissive to him and under his authority. The second thing that he does 
is he takes all of the ornaments of royalty away from the Midianite kings, and then he uh, uses it for an idolatrous purpose. That's the third thing he does, is he has them build an ephod. And this has always troubled me. I've always wondered what is really going on here. And there is a, a cognate word, the, the Hebrew word for ephod is epod, and it is a cognate to the Akkadian word epatu. And an epatu were, were these uh, costly garments, like an ephod, that were worn by the uh, priests, but they also would clothe their idols with these things. And so this is an ancient Near Eastern idolatrous practice of making these garments of, of gold and silver and jewels, and then you would put that onto an idol, and that would be worshipped. So uh, w- one of the views that I think is, is one of the best views I've read is this is the, a figure of speech where you're putting the, the, the ephod for what it's covering. They're not just worshiping the garment. The garment's on an idol, and they're worshiping the idol that has been uh, decorated with the spoils uh, of war. So this develops a cult in, in, uh, in Israel. And verse 27 says that he made it into an ephod, set it up in his city, Ophrah. So Ophrah, remember Ophrah? What was it known for before? There was an altar to Baal, and there were the Asherah that were there, and Gideon was to tear down the altar, and he had to destroy that altar. God gave him the order to do that. So what does he do? He comes back to his hometown, and he sets up this idol to be worshipped. So this is going to be a central worship center for this idolatry in Israel, which is, in effect, he is making his hometown uh, the capital. He's taking, what I'm pointing out here is he denies being a king, but then he does everything he can to act like a king, to dress like a king, to uh, bring everybody into his uh, his environment uh, to worship at his hometown and, in effect, making it the capital. So this develops this uh, cult of the ephod, and this becomes a snare. Uh, it leads Gideon and his house, his whole family. It's, it, it destroys them, uh, and uh, and it destroys Israel, the northern kingdom. And that's exactly the kind of thing this sort of idolatry and paganism does. It's self-destructive to a to a nation. So the conclusion of this in verse 28 says, Thus Midian was subdued before the children of Israel, so that they lifted their heads no more. Never again do you read of Israel being plagued by military attacks from the Midianites. And the quiet, and then we read, and the country was quiet for 40 years in the days of Gideon. Now, where did that peace and stability come from? Did it, is it the result of the fact that they were worshipful of God and they were submitting to the covenant of Moses? Not at all. They are still filled with idolatry, but God in his grace 
blesses the nation because of Gideon's faith in winning the battle. And so they're blessed by association even though no one is walking with the Lord. And we see the evidence of that when I make the statement that no one is is, uh, walking with the Lord is because when you get to the... um, Next section we read that Jeroboam, and Jeroboam is always emphasizing Gideon's pagan side. Uh, Gideon, the name Gideon represents the side where he's worshiping with the Lord. Jeroboam is the word that, uh, the name that was given to him by his father. And a lot of people have taught, and it sounds like when it says, let Baal contend, it's that it's Gideon contended against Baal in tearing down the altar. But the other way to look at that is that Baal is going to contend for himself. And so even though at the beginning in, Genesis, in uh, Judges 6, the altar uh, to Baal is torn down and destroyed, what do you see at the end of chapter 8? There's another idol in its place, and they're worshiping. So in the end... Uh, Baal wins, and uh, so Jeroboam emphasizes this this sort of double nature to Gideon. Uh, when he's obedient, you have the name Gideon. When he's not, it's Jeroboam. Uh, verse thirty: Gideon had seventy sons who were his own offspring, for he had many wives. So that's setting us up for what's going to happen in the ninth chapter, and he has a concubine. This is a legal relationship with someone who is not his wife. We don't understand concubinage very well in our culture. She doesn't have the full legal status as a wife, but she is protected so she just can't be uh, abused and treated like trash uh, by by the man. So there, there are legal protections for a concubine. So so it's a, it's sort of a legal status for his mistress. And he's got this mistress in Shechem. Now, we'll come back next time. We'll talk more about Shechem and its background in history. But when you read Shechem, you go back to Genesis and the whole episode there where uh, Jacob is going to marry off his daughter Dinah to, to the son of Shechem for whom the n- town is named. And... Um, and the brothers don't like it, Levi and I forget who the other one was, but these two brothers don't like it. So they go, they make a bargain and say, okay, we'll let her marry you, but you're going to all, all your, all the males in Shechem are going to have to be uh, circumcised. And so they, it, they come down, they, they agree to that. The men in Shechem agree to it. And so they come into town and they circumcise all the adult men. And so while they are healing and in pain, uh, Levi and the other brother come in the next day and kill them all. I mean, it's just brutal. And that shows how the sons of Jacob were already becoming paganized and acting as bad as the Canaanites at that time. That's why God had to take them out and move them all down into Egypt where uh, they could grow as an isolated um, uh, family unit without interference because the Egyptians were so prejudiced. They had such racial hatred for the Jews that they put them up in Goshen and wouldn't have anything to do with them socially. 
and that meant that they wouldn't intermarry. They could, didn't have um, extramarital affairs between the Jews and the Egyptians, and so that protected them for those years that they were in Egypt. Now, what happens here is that the, the concubine has a son whose name is Abimelech. I pointed out last time, Avi Melech means my father is king. Melech is the word for king. Av is the word for father. And the I is a first-person singular suffix, my father. So my father is king. So he's not going to be king, but he's going to name his son Avimelech. Now here's a little bit of trivia for you. I've always loved asking this trivia question. Who is the first king of Israel in the Bible? Avimelech. Because what we'll discover in chapter 9 is the men of Shechem will make him king of Israel. Now he's not God's choice, but that's what they did. They they crowned him king of, of, of Israel. So uh, what's going to happen with uh, Avimelech is that he is brutal and he is going to have all of his brothers uh, executed because they're, they're competition for the throne. And, um, what he, and, the, and he just becomes a tyrant in Shechem. So we'll have to deal with all of that, but this is this is giving us foreshadowing, introducing the main characters, the location, things of that nature, right here in verse verse uh, verses twenty nine to thirty two. So then we're told now Gideon the son of Joash died at a good old age and was buried in the tomb of Joash's father in Ophrah of the Abizrites. So. Gideon is at the end of his life, and what happens after he dies? They have great celebrations to honor Gideon, right? They put up statues in the city hall, and they have a huge funeral honoring him for all that he did. Wrong. So it was as soon as Gideon was died, as, was dead that the children of Israel again played the harlot. They were at spiritual adultery. Uh, the only, spiritual adultery in the Bible is when you are not obedient to God and you're worshiping another God, period. That's the only way that you can commit spiritual adultery is to worship another God. And that is why this, this concept of adultery is used in a physical sense, but it's applied metaphorically to this uh, uh, rebellion against God and worshiping other gods. They uh, played the harlot. They uh, committed spiritual adultery with the Baals, and they made the local Baal deity, Baal Berit, their god. Now, that's important because this is setting us up. There is a... a, um, It was a, a concrete stone rather stone pillar that was set up in the temple there. And they've discovered, and I've been there at Shkem, uh, where they have the, uh, the remains of this, this pole. And I'll have some pictures of that next time. But Baal, the basic meaning of Baal is Lord, Lord uh, of our master. That's the basic idea. It's like Adonai. 
but it is used to refer to the this one deity in the Canaanite pantheon. And this, he's distinguished here because he has entered into a covenant with the inhabitants of Shechem. So Baal Berit, Berit is the Hebrew word for covenant. So he's the Lord of the covenant. And that is just a, a, a perversion of Yahweh, who is the God who gave Israel the covenant. So Satan is just a master counterfeiter here. Uh, bringing in these false gods and that this is the real God who, who gave them a covenant. And then we're told in verse 34, thus the children of Israel did not remember the Lord their God. And how many times have you he- heard me talk about the fact that remembering something in Scripture doesn't mean just recalling it to mind. You remember and you do something in reference to what you're remembering. So if you remember God, you don't just say, oh, yeah, I remember God. Thank you, God. No, you go to the temple and you sacrifice. You, you, do some, you go worship God. So when they don't remember God, they are abandoning God. They are forgetting God. They're taking God completely out of their life. He, there's no prayer in the schools anymore. There's no altars to Yahweh in the town uh, all of these things are removed. You can't talk about Yahweh. You can't talk about uh, the Mosaic law. All of this is, is taken away. So that's what happens is they go and they basically are living like pagan, pagans. And what you see in chapter 9 is that Israel by this time is thinking and living worse than the Canaanites. They are so degraded. And we're seeing that same kind of thing happening in pockets of Western countries of Western civilization. Just think about a couple of years ago with the various riots with Antifa and the George Floyd riots and all of these horrible things where private property is destroyed and police are attacked. And you just had uh, the inner part of cities were just turned into war zones. Uh, we're acting worse than, than than pagans. This is unacceptable behavior, and it comes because we've rejected God. It's because that no matter how many pastors and pulpits got up and extolled George Floyd and what was going on, and in many cases supported uh, the anarchy of Antifa, that's because these pastors don't know anything about the Bible or the Word of God, and they're just false teachers. And that's what happens in so many pulpits of this country today. I remember when I was, and this isn't the first time this has happened. I remember when I was at my high school graduation, 1970. What's going on in this country in 1970? Well, Kent State wasn't a whole lot Couple, two or three weeks before that graduation, Vietnam and all the controversy over Vietnam was going on. And I don't know who was responsible for selecting the speaker for the commencement, but he was an extreme leftist priest from an Episcopal school here, our Episcopal church here in Houston. And about five minutes into his very politicized message 
you had parents standing up in the balconies in the old Sam Houston Coliseum downtown. They were standing up in the balconies yelling to shut up and sit down and leave. And the kids were starting to stand up and, and yell back at their parents. And they had to bring in, they had to stop everything to bring everything back to order so they could finish. And eventually, I think he tried to start up a few more times, but he had to cut his uh, treasonous speech in half and leave so that uh, it wouldn't get any worse. But uh, So this kind of thing has happened before in this country. And it's going to happen in even greater ways in the years to come unless there's a spiritual change and a spiritual shift uh, take place. And this is what's happening in in Israel. And it, it flows out of this complete lack of gratitude for what God has had done for them. Notice verse 34, thus the children of Israel did, uh, thus the children of Israel did not remember the Lord their God who had delivered them, and that's the word yasha, where we get Yeshua for Jesus. It's the same word for saved. Who had, uh, the Lord their God who had saved them from the hands of all their enemies on every side. So they're ignoring God, but it doesn't stop there. Nor did they show kindness to the house of Jeroboam, Gideon, in accordance with the good that he had done for Israel. So there's no gratitude for the heroes. Look at what we've seen happen in as a result of cancel culture over the last two or three years, removing all of these statues. Not all of these men were wonderful, just like not all of the men in the Bible were wonderful, but they were men who were patriots, and they were men who contributed to the history of this nation. And when you go and you tear down these statues, for whatever reason, you're destroying your own history, and that's self-destruction. And that is horrific. Only animals and beasts with no understanding of integrity and truth will do that kind of thing. And all it's going to do is create more antagonism and hostility and divisiveness, which is what we're seeing in Israel at this time. So they, they don't show any kindness to the house of Jeroboam in accordance with the good that he had done for Israel. And we'll see the consequences of this ingratitude in chapter 9. But we're going to stop here and talk about what the Bible teaches about gratitude. We live in a world that has lost the sense of gratitude. The gratitude is in response to God's grace. We look at what's happened in these, in these chapters. Back in chapter 6, the people cried out. There was no turning away from idolatry, but they cried out to God to deliver them. And God delivered them. Despite their continued negative volition and hostility, God sent a deliverer that was Gideon. And God demonstrated his faithfulness despite Israel's unfaithfulness. That is God's unconditional love, his covenant love, his chesed love, that he uh, did for Israel what they did not Uh, deserve at all. So uh, they have no gratitude toward God, no gratitude toward Gideon. So what is gratitude? First of all, we must understand where this word derives. Gratitude in English comes from the Latin word gratia, which is also the root of the word grace. And which means undeserved favor or kindness. 
so uh, the response of kindness to people, and it says that people weren't even kind to the house of Gideon. They had no gratitude. They, they, were, they had no understanding of grace. You can't have gratitude without grace. You can't understand grace without being uh, grateful. So second point is that gratitude is expressed as appreciation, acknowledgement, appreciativeness, gratefulness, recognition, thankfulness. A lost art today, and I hear this from different sources, is that people don't say thank you. People don't send thank you notes. People don't observe uh, good manners in this way that when somebody does something for them or somebody gives them something, that they don't acknowledge it. And they just go on as if they deserve it. See, the people are so self-absorbed. You, you, you can't be grateful and self-absorbed at the same time. So if you're self-absorbed, you just assume that, well, I deserve this, and so I'm going to go on, and you never say thank you or anything else. One of the most important things that parents can teach their kids is to say thank you. We used to say that when I was a kid that they're the two magic words, what are they? Please and thank you, and to teach those manners uh, to kids. And this is typical of those who reject God. They have no sense of gratitude. Romans one twenty one, for even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. So those who are rejecters of God are ungrateful. Now, that doesn't mean that everybody who rejects God is ungrateful. Some people have been taught good manners even though they reject God. But it's important to understand that uh, in being an ingrate is related to being an atheist and being an agnostic. Third, gratitude is directly related to grace orientation. Grace orientation is directed toward God. We understand what God has done for us. See, grace orientation is, the spirit, is a spiritual skill. That means it has to be practiced and it has to be uh, developed, and it's developed as we come to understand what has happened in salvation. So in terms of developing the characteristics of grace orientation, the starting point is at salvation. We think about what God did for us in saving us. Isn't that remarkable? We deserve nothing more than the lake of fire. No human being since Adam deserved anything other than eternal condemnation. But God in his goodness and kindness and generosity and grace, no strings attached, provided a solution for the sin problem that was dependent only upon accepting it as a free gift. So it starts with understanding grace at salvation, understanding that our sins are freely forgiven, and then after salvation, that uh, through confession of sin, we can continue to be restored to fellowship with God. And as we come to develop grace orientation, we also develop a grace, uh, I mean a relaxed mental attitude, because we understand that everything in life is under God's control, everything is grace, so we don't have to be in the position of trying to control the people around us, try to control the events around us, we can relax and have a relaxed mental attitude of calmness, and this develops into uh, joy and stability in the soul. 
and we come to recognize that the details in life, success, education, money, finance, all these things, nothing wrong with them. But when we make them the source of joy and stability and happiness, we're all about controlling all of those details and bringing them under our control. And so what happens is we never have joy or happiness or stability. But we have to go back to grace, that God is going to provide uh, what we need. Fourth thing is that a capacity for genuine gratitude develops from understanding salvation and all that God has done for us. Psalm 118.21, psalmist declares, I shall give thanks to thee, for thou hast answered me, and thou hast become my salvation. So it starts there. God has delivered us. God has provided for us. God has given us the homes that we have. Somebody says, well, I worked for that. Yeah, well, who gave you the job? Who made, gave you the ability to work for it? Who gave you the intelligence to do your job? You didn't get that on your own. All of that came from God. We have to understand everything we have, the air we breathe, the food we eat, the cars we drive, the homes we live in, our spouses, our children, everything comes from God. And we have to be grateful for that. Fifth, as we learn about our salvation the more we learn about it, the more we explore the, the, the depths of God's love and the dimensions of what happened on the cross, the more gratitude we have for God. We're just amazed at how God has done so much just to save us and how it was planned and prophesied, how it was laid out, how it developed. It took over, over uh, four or 5,000 years from the time of Adam's original sin, it took millennia to develop the human race to the point where it was ready to receive the Savior. And at that point, his own people did not receive him. That's what John is saying in John 1.11. He came into his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he the power to become the sons of God, even to those who believe on his name. Six, therefore, gratitude begins with making doctrine, what the Bible teaches, your number one priority in life. We have to understand what the Bible teaches because it orients us to God, which orients us to reality, which orients us to the fact that what we have comes from God and is provided by God. Psalm 138.2 says, I will bow down toward thy holy temple and give thanks to thy name for thy loving kindness and thy truth, for thou hast magnified thy word according to all thy name. God has magnified his word, and so we should magnify his word. Only as we uh, come to understand his word and understand all that he has done do we develop that capacity for gratitude so number seven gratitude therefore is always first directed toward god people may be involved in the intermediate means but we begin by thanking god thanking god for them for using those people that they were willing to be used and whatever it might be gratitude begins with god and it develops through our understanding of salvation and the spiritual life and understanding God's character.
So then gratitude toward God becomes a barometer of our capacity for fellowship with God. So when people are not showing much gratitude, the result is that they don't have much of a spiritual life because they're not living a life of gratefulness. And this then leads to self-centeredness or is the byproduct of self-centeredness. So the joy that we have in Christ, the joy that's the fruit of the Spirit, comes as we grow in our understanding of the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, and then this develops into uh, a grace orientation in the soul, and that eventually leads to uh, joy and inner happiness. Here's some of the scripture that we read about thanks. In Psalm 7:17 is a a statement, a proclamation of the psalmist giving thanks to the Lord. He says, I will give thanks to the Lord according to his righteousness and will sing praise to the name of the Lord Most High. Psalm 97.12 is a call to give thanks. Be glad in the Lord. In other words, uh, be joyful. Be glad in the Lord, you righteous ones, and give thanks. Giving, being glad and giving thanks are in synonymous parallelism with each other. So you, you, being grateful is related to being joyful in the Lord. 1 Thessalonians 5.18 gives us a command to, to give thanks in everything. Give thanks in everything or in all things for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 5.20 echoes it, changes the words a little bit, and says, always give thanks for all things, even the bad things that happen. Give thanks for that because God's got a purpose. All things work together for good. God's got a purpose in that, even though we may not see it or understand it. In Colossians 2.7, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith just as you were instructed. See, the instruction is the teaching of the word of God, the doctrine of the word of God, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. Colossians 1.12, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. And those are just a few of the passages emphasizing, emphasizing gratitude. Now, what's the enemy of gratitude? The first and primary enemy of gratitude is arrogance. Gratitude is the opposite of self-absorption. In gratitude, we're giving credit to others. And we're thanking them for what they have done in, in um, self-absorption. We think we're entitled to whatever people have done for us. We think we deserve it, and so we are uh, proud of ourselves. It's just the focal point is on me, me, me. And so these arrogant skills of self-absorption leads to self-indulgence. Self-indulgence leads to self-justification. Self-justification leads to self-deception, and self-deception leads to self-deification. We just think of ourselves as little gods. The second enemy of gratitude is the thinking of the world, worldliness, cosmic thinking, because number one, it's grounded on arrogance, and arrogance is what produces the uh, 
autonomy, the desire for independence from God. I don't owe God anything. I'm not grateful to God for anything. And the other part of, of worldliness is arrogance. I mean, excuse me, antagonism. Antagonism to God's word and to what it teaches. So whenever we are uh, walking according to the flesh, we are going to be manifesting this self-absorption, this arrogance, and this desire to be independent from God, which always leads to a resistance and then eventually to a hostility to God's word. Number 13, therefore, we cannot begin to properly orient to the teaching of Scripture, Bible doctrine, if we first don't orient to grace. Grace orientation is fundamental. We have to start with... um, we start with confession of sin so that we can be walking by the Spirit. We move from confession of sin in the direction of learning the Word and being oriented to the Word and oriented to grace and the faith rest drill. Those three things function together, and that leads us through our maturing process as children. Psalm 138, verse 2 says, I will bow down toward thy holy temple and give thanks to thy name for thy loving kindness, that is, your loyal, faithful, loyal love and your truth. For you have magnified your word according to all your name. We'll come back next time and we'll go swimming in the muck of chapter 9 and understanding all uh, all these weird things. So... You've got an interesting parable in starting in verse 7 down to 15. You have, uh, you know, the murder of uh, taking out a whole family. And then you have the total implosion of the culture, all as a result of Abimelech's arrogance, which was basically bred by his father Gideon. Father, thank you for the opportunity to look at these things. And, Father, I pray that we would be all more um, uh, aware of how grateful we need to be, grateful for each other, grateful for your word, grateful for all that you've provided, grateful that we live in this wonderful nation that still recognizes our inherent freedoms, Uh, grateful that we have good men and women who are running for office this year, Uh, who need to be elected in place of many of those who are in office, that we need to start working on what will be a centuries-long battle to change the culture of the nation through the impact of your word. And this has happened before, and it can happen again. And it can only happen, though, if you are gracious enough to us to allow this to happen. But if not then we know that whatever happens is according to your will and your plan and that all things will work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to your purpose. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.